Yeah, act like I'm starting now. So I am now joined by uh, my very good friend, uh, Matt McManus, uh, who teaches uh, political science at the University of Michigan. Um, in uh, the uh, So that would be the evil state university in, in my home state. And... <laughs> Uh, uh, frequently writes for Marion West and Jacobin and a bunch of other places. Matt uh, is, and this is me saying it, an absurdly productive person. I've also collaborated with him on a whole bunch of things. Uh, most recently, uh, I wrote an introduction to his new book, uh, How to Guide to, to Cosmopolitan Socialism, a tribute to Michael Brooks which is coming out next year, I suppose, uh, from, uh, from Zero Books. They, they just put up the page for that. Um, and I, I thought I would ask him on because I, I saw a tweet last week. Uh, I think it was like the end of last week. I don't know. Time is a flat circle. That, um, that I was, that uh, made me curious to... You know, to see like, uh, you know, what we might agree on and what we might disagree on when it comes to uh, the Ukraine war and and how uh, and how the the left uh, typically you know approaches it or should approach it. Uh, and since I have never had a bad conversation with Matt, and uh, and you know, I, I I just thought like rather than trying to explore all that on Twitter. Uh, I would, which is yep. uh, known for, uh, for, for being a wonderful place for constructive engagement. I, uh, I would, uh, I, I thought would thought it'd be more, more pleasant and interesting to, uh, to just have a, a conversation about it and it'd probably interest a bunch of other people too. So we could, uh, we could do it on Colin. So thanks. Yeah, I know it's uh, exciting to be here. Yeah, so um was thinking about this. So the yeah, so the the tweet um yeah, so the tweet that you uh that uh that started all this was last Friday or something. Uh you had uh you tweeted, let me see if I can uh I can pull it up. Uh it says uh all right, uh, here it is. There's a difference between being anti-war and agitating for appeasement. Being anti-war means first and foremost uh, critical of those who start aggressive wars. Appeasement conciliates with or even flatters them. Uh, I guess there are two more tweets in the thread, so I should read those two because they had some nuance. Uh, second tweet, to be clear, I'm hopeful the war in Ukraine ends soon, and I'm deeply concerned to find an ending that is both just and avoid potential nuclear war. But there is nothing progressive about apologizing for reactionary plutocratic regime engaged in imperialist aggression against neighbor. Uh, the fact that uh, Western countries have done the same, we've rightly criticized them for that, imposes only a greater onus on us to show integrity on that now. That's the third tweet. So uh -huh. uh, before we, um, you know, before we get into to some of my thoughts about this or some of what I was curious about about that tweet or um, you know, what you were getting at or parts of it that made me think there might be areas of disagreement here. Do you want to, is there anything you want to say to just kind of expand on the original thought? Sure. I guess I'll just uh, explain myself for about two minutes here. 
so first off, I should say that, you know, I became politicized due to the Iraq war uh, and in response to American imperialism in the early 2000s. So I'm very sensitive uh, and very much in agreement uh, with people who point out things like U.S. imperialism played a role in catalyzing this conflict, uh, particularly from the 1990s onward, uh, when we made promises uh, to the Russian Federation that NATO wouldn't expand, and then we immediately backtracked on those promises when it was no longer convenient. Uh, so let's just be very clear about that. We bear quite a bit of responsibility in the West for what's happening right now. Uh, saying that, uh, I have found it frustrating that people don't always appreciate that two things can be bad at the same time, uh, and we can be critical of Western imperialism and the impact that's had on the world, while also recognizing that Russia is engaging in an imperialist expansionistic war that's causing devastation to the region. Uh, and one of the reasons I stress this distinction between appeasement uh, and criticism uh, is there's kind of an unholy alliance that's formed between some factions uh, on the left uh, who have nice things to say about Putin and frankly reactionaries, uh, people like J.D. Vance and Jordan Peterson. And I want us to be much, much more clear in delineating ourselves from these figures. Uh, so a couple months ago, Peterson released a long video uh, where he basically suggested that Putin was invincible and nothing we could do could stop him, hasn't exactly aged well. Uh, and beyond pointing out you know, a couple soft peddled criticisms uh, of Putin uh, and the regime there, he also said, well, they consider themselves as being at war with woke liberal culture. And it doesn't take that much to read between the lines, right? That there's some sympathy uh, for this project, uh, at least the way that Peterson understands it, right? Uh, and you can see similar kind of uh, reactions by people like J.D. Vance, for example, right? Where Vance will say things like, I don't even know anything about what's going on in Ukraine. We shouldn't be wasting American treasure uh, by funding these kinds of people. While at the same time, he endorses a lot of policies uh, that are very, very much in line uh, with what Putin and his cronies uh, would want. Uh, and so these kinds of gestures of appeasement uh, that express a kind of tacit or even explicit admiration for Russia and the authoritarian regime in place there, I don't think we can have any truck with. Uh, I think that we need to very clearly demarcate that we on the left are opposed to what the regime there is, the regime's own brutality towards its own people, frankly, uh, while also trying to find a way to end the conflict as specifically as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I agree with almost all of that. I think um, I, I don't, spe you know, I don't spend a lot of time criticizing people on the left who may be like genuinely pro-Putin or um, or like actually think that the invasion of Ukraine is, is a good thing. Uh, pro probably the most that I've done along those lines is on the, the YouTube channel uh, for a uh, one of the debate breakdowns that we do. I, I had um, uh, the Victor Brazon and, and Ethan on to uh, to to do to like watch a debate that involved people who do take that position, which would be uh, uh, Haas, infrared, that guy, and uh, and and Jackson Hinkle, who's since become, uh, who's since get, gotten his fifteen minutes of fame for uh, for for coining and pushing the phrase "mega communism," which surely means something, but I, yeah. I don't know what. Uh, <laughs> so those are those are examples of people who actually do take this position, and uh, you know, and like you know, we we made fun of them on the thing. Uh, 
you know, but I I don't spend too much time on that because I, it, it does seem to me like a very very marginal view. Like I I don't see, mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of people. I don't see a lot of people saying that, right? I mean, like there's there's the uh, I guess a recent example that that got a little bit of a splash, and I'm not even sure these people are quite that. Uh, they might be crazy in a different, a slightly different way, but there were you know a couple of people who are uh, heckling AOC about uh, some of her Ukraine votes, and I think they're actually like affiliated with some like Larusheite, um, you know institute or something so so i don't don't know if those are even leftists exactly but uh but yeah i mean i mean to the extent that it comes up i mean i'm I'm happy to say yeah i i I disagree i mean i think those people are obviously wrong uh like you i you know opposing the war in iraq was a you know formative political experience for me i was you know already a leftist uh, for a long time, since I was a I was a weird kid, you know, and I was I was, I was obsessed yeah. with politics, you know, early on. But uh, but but it was it was certainly a hugely formative uh, political experience for me in two thousand two, two thousand three, and I think it just about everything I've I've written about uh, that touches in any way on the war in Ukraine. At some point or another, I've compared the invasion of Ukraine by Russia to the invasion of Iraq by the United States, which, you know, like I said, big formative experience. I take that seriously. Like when I say that, that means I think it's bad. Uh, but I, so so I, you know, I think that those people, I mean, you know, I guess like some of the people around Gray Zone maybe uh, are probably about the most prominent examples, but you know, but those people who genuinely do take that position should be criticized. With I'm, I'm with you on that. It, it's a, it, you know, it's a it's a war of of imperial aggression, no doubt about it. And you know, and I think like, look, I wrote an article for for Current Affairs called like I don't know, is what about is always a bad thing or something like that. And um, yeah, uh, and and in it, right, I I said, look. Um, you can imagine that if if like a left wing government in Mexico was uh, pursuing a civil war against an American backed uh, faction within the country, and the lefty government in Mexico City was pursuing membership in like the Warsaw Pact, you can put this thought experiment in the seventies or eighties, I guess. Um, I, I think the United States might very well invade under those circumstances, but also like I would be marching in anti-war protests. Like I, and I, I have nothing but sympathy for people in Russia who are doing the same thing. But I, I guess what did strike me as, as a place, you know, where there might be differences is, you know, is, is using the word appeasement, which, I tend to see people use this, or I think pretty much always when I've seen people use this, they mean something very specific, right? Which is like, um, which, you know, which is that, um, you know, like basically any sort of like peace talks that would wind down the war in ways that presumably, like most peace talks in most situations, um, you know, Ireland, Palestine, whatever, like uh, would not give anybody a hundred percent of what they wanted. That seems like kind of the nature of peace talks, and that that would. I mean, what do they say? Right, we make peace with our enemies, so there's always going to be a little compromise there. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, so, so I usually see see that referred to as 
as appeasement and you know and, and I guess maybe to put some flesh in the bones of that like I don't know um, I, I'm very hesitant to speculate about what that agreement might look like because I think that's something to be decided by the parties actually you know at the table and I mean like that's it's a little um, like like I wrote an article defending what Noam Chomsky said about this but like the one place where I think Chomsky did make a mistake is that you know I think he probably you know it, like, I think he probably went too far in the direction of trying to spell out an exact settlement. It's like, okay, that's not really for, for us to decide. But, like, uh, but like whatever it looked like, and I'm sure, you know, given the way the war has gone in the last, you know, few months especially, um, probably, you know, it would, like, that, that settlement would look better for, for Ukraine now than it would have before. Although, given a few more months, and that might not be the case anymore. God knows. But, like, I would be pretty shocked if, um, I would be pretty shocked if, uh, if, like, Russia didn't at least hold on to Crimea, which uh, they annexed back in 2014, and, you know, if there wasn't, like, some kind of accommodation about, like, at least, like, bits and pieces like, you know, the Donbass is, like, bigger than people think it is, you know, and, and it was not all in Russian hands uh, before before February, but I made, like, for, for, like, pieces of that at least, and it's, and, you know, and, and I'll sort of see people compare that, like, compare the idea that, like, pushing pushing peace, peace talks to, uh, to end the war would, would be appeasement because because Russia would presumably be getting at least parts of what it wanted for that and and that always you know and, and that always really bothers me because you know I I think um, again I I think it's kind of the nature you know like um, you know the the Palestinians and the IRA certainly you know I mean obviously Palestinians there has not been a permanent peace settlement but like if there had been right you know uh, they they wouldn't have gotten everything they wanted if. If the, you know, I mean, the Belfast, you know, the the Good Friday Agreement, right, you know, certainly didn't certainly didn't give uh, Irish Republicans uh, everything, everything they wanted. And, you know, and I, I, I'm very, I'm very reluctant to, to compare those things to uh, to to Munich. Right. I mean, I think that that having that sort of like my, my worry about that sort of a, where World War Two always looms so long and so large in everybody's imagination is that it's. Uh-huh. It's sort of, um, you know, if everything is World War II, well, you know, World War II, I guess, was was one of the rare cases in which it was a good thing to just, you know, fight it out to the bitter end and, you know, and, 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 and insist on total victory. But, you know, I don't think wars are usually like that. No, and I agree with you. And I should highlight that the comment that I made on Twitter was primarily addressed to centrist pundits. Uh, particularly those who do call for, you know, total victory, watch marching into Moscow, just the eradication of the regime without any kind of consideration of what might replace it. Uh, what I wanted to do is analytically demarcate what look like two similar views, but which I think are actually profoundly different. Uh, one is the kind of approach that does, I think, agitate for appeasement of Russia, which is what you see mm-hmm. by the Vances uh, and the Petersons of the world. Uh, and this is usually inclusive of a kind of very thinly veiled respect for the regime and what it's mm-hmm. trying to do. Uh, and I don't think that any left-wing personality uh, should have any kind of truck with that, even though it does have a superficially anti-imperialist kind of quality to it, right? Yeah, anti-American uh, well, imperialist. Well, yeah, exactly, right? No, that's the key point. 
where they're like, well, you know, we shouldn't have been there to begin with, and you know, it's not really our business, and you know, the regime is waging war against wokeness anyway by attacking Ukraine somehow. So which 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 which, which, which parenthetically, I I think anybody who knows anything about Ukraine. Um, I, I think the idea that there's a big wokeness gap between Russia and Ukraine is odd. Well, you know, sometimes the admin, or sorry, the regime itself doesn't seem to be beholden to that. Uh, but anyway, so distinguishing between that and what you might call more principled anti-imperialism, of the sort you see someone like Bernie Sanders put forward, right, where you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who is more critical of American imperialism than Sanders or AOC, uh, and rightly so. Uh, but they're also capable of acknowledging that what the Putin regime is doing is evil. Uh, and whether or not it dresses up its intervention uh, by claiming it's anti-Nazi or anti-West or anti-American imperialism, uh, it has very little to do with any of that. Uh, and again, I think that Sanders' principal position of arguing for sanctions, particularly against the billionaire class in Russia, is mm -hmm. the right way to go and what we should be doing. On the broader question uh, of whether or not we should be agitating for some kind of specific resolution to the conflict, obviously you and I are in complete agreement with that. Uh, what that would entail, I honestly don't really know, right? Uh, and part of the reason I say that is because there's so many circumstances on the ground that are absolutely vital to thinking through what would be an adequate peace agreement uh, that I'm just not privy to. And to just look at your example, right? Uh, the Good Friday Agreement that brought an end to the Troubles uh, in Ireland uh, involved really decades of negotiation between the respective parties. Uh, and it mm -hmm. did absolutely have to entail a certain amount of compromise, but these were very specific kinds of compromise. For instance, you know, mm -hmm. allowing Sinn Féin to, to progress from being uh, essentially an insurrectionary movement into a legitimate political party, which many in the United Kingdom didn't want to allow. Uh, and then also, of course, you know, giving up uh, agitation for uh, conciliation, or sorry, for um, unification uh, with the Republic of Ireland by force. That was something the other side had to give up. Uh, but these aren't the kinds of things that you can hash out a priori, the way that theorists like you and I probably want to hash them out, right? <laughs> sure, sure. It, it, yeah, it really requires you to have knowledge of things on the ground, uh, and I just don't have that kind of information. Right? No, that, uh, that, that, part's, that part is, that, yeah, that part is, that part is totally fair. I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, I, I mean, I just... I, I mean, I think maybe at least as a matter of of, of emphasis, uh, I'm uh, I I think. <laughs> I mean, for what you know, one thing I, I would just point out about this is that I think that the the consequences of of conflict dragging on here are fairly terrifying. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, not just for not just for the Ukrainians. Well, you're yeah. enough of a pussy. You're afraid of uh, nuclear annihilation, Ben. Come on, you know, fucking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the big deal with that, right? It'd be. I've watched enough movies to know that you know it'll just basically be a Mad Max scenario. That's fun. We'll all drive around in cars at hyper speeds. You know, there'll be all kinds of fun violence. It'll be great. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I'll tell you what. Like, I there. I mean, I don't want to sell myself short. There are things I'm really good at. I could like turn around a 1200 word article really quickly after I get an assignment. I, I could, um, you know, I could roll a pretty thin joint. I have all sorts of skills, but, um, yeah. I don't, I don't know that those skills would serve me well. The bad max wasteland. No, me neither. Right. And I don't want that either. Uh, so look, you know, uh, I tend to agree with Sanders, uh, and Chomsky that we need some kind of negotiated resolution to this. Uh, I also think that it's entirely uh, reckless to say that what we want is a complete and victorious end to the war 
which will mean the collapse of the Putin administration. In fact, I would argue that that's part of the rationale or reasoning that got us into these problems in the first place, where people were just so eager to see the Soviet Union disappear that they didn't give any kind of thought into what might possibly replace it, uh, which to my mind is a very bad uh, regime, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so what kind of a posteriori context uh, and interest would we have to negotiate and think through in order to reach what would be an acceptable piece? Again, I really don't know. I would have to speak to people in Ukraine. I have to speak to people in the Russian administration. I'd have to have a lot more experience uh, with what's going on uh, to say that with some uh, frank yeah. confidence. But, yeah, but no, I, I do think that it's very important that we on the left do what Sanders did, uh, which is to highlight that our enemy, uh, the enemy of our enemy is not our friend. Uh, just because Putin is willing to occasionally cater to some anti-imperialist or anti-Western rhetoric uh, does not make what the regime is doing there in any way, shape, or form acceptable. Two things can be bad at the same time. Uh, and in fact, I would say that this is one of the worst regimes around. And the left should really be hoping for uh, its dissolution one day at the hand of democratic pressures within Russia. No, for I mean, sure. The first right? victims of Putin's are Putin's first victims are his own people, right? And I make it very clear in every article I've written about this, right? That uh, I hope for the sake of many of the people in Russia, including all those people who are illegitimately being conscripted right now. Uh, that he goes the ways of the di- way of the dinosaurs really really soon. Will that happen? I don't know. Five yeah, for sh- for sure. I mean, I I think that um, you know this. I mean, look, I uh, I think there may have been. I mean, it's a little hard to tell because the sort of fog of war and and uh, all of that, right? But I, I believe at least it's rumored there there have been at least you know an incident or two of people of like. Uh, of uh, of people actually like um, you know shooting uh, you know the uh, people who who work for the conscription office uh, which which you know I I uh, I'm certainly not going to condemn uh, you know nope. but uh, you know I'm 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 sympathetic to that but um, but I I'm all um, but look I mean I, I I think that I think that it would be insane to say that like as it is more unfortunate or senile moments. I think Biden has actually slipped into saying that like regime change should be like a, yeah. a, a war goal. But I mean, I think that if, I think that if it happened internally, yeah, fantastic. I mean, like this is, uh, you know, it's like, I don't want, uh, I don't want, uh, I don't want secularism to uh, be brought to Iran. 82nd airborne but i will i will i will celebrate very heartily if it's if it's uh if it's brought to iran by uh, the iranian people and and so yeah i mean i i i i think that there's a um you know i mean yeah i mean the putin the putin, the putin regime is is, is god awful and i mean like it, it's certainly in fact before the war uh started uh the um like um putin gave a speech where he uh he said um he said that like he he blamed uh, lenin and the russian revolution for for uh uh yeah. ukrainian nationalism so I, I i don't know how much how much clearer he could make it which side of history he sees himself as being on but i want to go to um you know since i do want to keep this relatively short i do want to go to calls uh i just want to say two things before i start taking calls uh, one is that we'll probably try to bust through these uh, at a fairly rapid clip to make sure we can talk to everybody. And uh, so uh, I might, 
you know, sometimes go to the next caller in the middle of answering uh, one caller. Another, given the nature of the subject, is just like, you know, if, um, you know, like just, you know, don't uh, don't accuse anybody of being, uh, let's say, either uh, either a um, a CIA agent or a uh, or a uh, or or a or a Putin uh, Putin apologist, because uh, either of those are going to be very short conversations before we move on to, sure. to another uh, to to another uh, more uh, more interested and constructive call. So, with that said, uh, let's take the first call. Uh, who's been very waiting very patiently this whole time, I think, which is Daniel. Hey, so much. And yeah, no problem at all. It was a really good discussion. Um, yeah, Matt, thanks. Thanks for your, your thoughts on the whole situation. I've really struggled with a lot of the people who've, um, you know, uh, self-ascribed who are uh, self-ascribed uh, anti-war or pro-peace. Uh, and then just seeing that as, is essentially, uh, a foil to to de facto uh endorse what russia is doing like it's it's just so concerning to me uh and and again like you know on the right it's reactionary bullshit but on the left it's uh i've seen people basically uh, you know assert it as uh an ideological like a, an ideologically sound stance and i'm just like i'm struggling to understand like what that could even entail in terms in terms of not uh, believing that uh, a sovereign nation or people have a right to defend themselves, and so I'm just uh, I guess I don't I don't know if I have. Can, can I can I, can I just I, ask you a question, Daniel? Uh, sure, Ben. Yeah. Who who are you like? Uh, like are are you just talk kind of talking about people you see on Twitter? Is there like are there well like, uh, like are you guys familiar with Jeff Young running in in Kentucky? guy's like a straight nut job uh okay. he's 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 run for congress uh on the left or sorry you know like de facto democratic uh but he's definitely you know he'd tell you he's not a democrat uh he's like lost in the primary i don't know 12 years running but he finally won this year uh and he's just like you know he has pro peace plastered at the top of his uh twitter and then he'll just be like you know like We'll be talking about how like Russia's not really losing. It's like, why would you care so much about Russia winning or losing if you are pro peace? I don't even understand. Uh, he's you know quoting Moon of Alabama and like, I'm sorry, but that that site is batshit crazy. Like, I'm just like, how do we engage with people who profess this 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 uh, stance of anti-war? But like, it's clearly just kind of like a, a veil to it's like complicity through omission, right? You're like, well, of course I condemn anyone invading, but I'm, but I'm pro peace, you know, like above anything. And it just, to me, it, it's just not reading as, as uh, sincere or congruent. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very fair. Uh, and that's clear. I think the thing that you should do is just not engage with those people. Sure. Sure. Lesson that I have I mean, painfully, uh, you know, cause I get <laughs> thrown my way and I completely understand the temptation just, want to go line by line and deconstruct it, but we all have lives to live. And you sound like a smart and sincere guy. So I'm sure you have better things to do with your time than handle every jack than to have to handle every jackass that says bullshit your way. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, you know, like I just curious too, if you've heard that quote from Orwell about pacifism. Uh, yeah. So, so it's the, it's the pacifist, you know, 
basically, basically during World War II, George Orwell said, I don't remember the exact quote, maybe Daniel can remind me, but it's, it's something along the lines of like, basically pacifists are like objectively supporters of the enemy or something like that. Is that, is that the one you're talking about, Daniel? Yeah. The first line is pacifism is objectively pro-fascist written in 1942. Yeah. And then he goes, goes on to say, I don't know if, if you feel like that is a fair thing to assert at someone, but. Well, I was curious what you thought of that. What, what I think thing it depend I, on the person. Yeah, one thing I... Yeah, no, that's fair. Look, I mean, sure. If if somebody is saying, like, oh, you know, Russia isn't really losing, and they've got some, like, they're, like, super invested in, like, things... They haven't even shown their final form yet. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. About so, to reveal so, their full power level, yeah. Something that sounds <laughs> like it's taken straight from, like, the Russian Foreign Office, like, press release or something then I think it might be fair to... You know, there may be people who call themselves pacifists who are like objectively uh, pro-Putin, uh, and that sounds like it could be a plausible example just based on what you said. I would, I would say on that, on that Orwell quote, though, that like, um, I would, you know, I, I don't love that quote, and, and I, would also, I would also point out that, that Orwell himself, you know, and, and also, I would just point out, with relative to something I wrote recently, that um, I think a lot of the reason that people know that quote is that Christopher Hitchens popularized it a lot in his final years. And um, and one thing that he never brought up, which which does seem a little dishonest of him, is that uh, and there's this is not a source I would recommend it on very many issues, but there's a there's a Reason magazine article about this that I I saw. I, I think if you just Google some keywords, you'll find it uh, that. Uh, Orwell himself did kind of walk that back, uh, like later. While mm. it's, it's something he wrote while World War II was still going on. I mean, he was, you yeah. know, he he was pro-war, which I think is not incorrect in the context of World War II. But and uh, but he he did sort of say, okay, um, that's um, like basically he he decided that that was like a little bit too close to like something that one of his Stalinist opponents would say and he <laughs> and he was like look i disagree with the pacifists but like you can't just like write them off as as um by saying they're objectively pro fascist you have to engage with you know with what they're saying which which you know which i appreciate cuz it's like look uh are we going to take that line generally that if, that somebody who doesn't like isn't enthusiastic about one side of a war is like you know, was 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 Eugene V. Debs objectively pro Kaiser? You know, is is uh, sure. you know, were was 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 a young Matt McManus objectively pro Saddam? You know, <laughs> like like I I think uh, sure the, sure yeah uh, yeah yeah okay. no I, I, I absolutely sympathize with sorry oh, go, go ahead, ahead no, no go ahead. I was going to say I think this is where some of the problem with the language of appeasement that I brought up in the uh, tweet comes in because uh, I can understand why many on the left would be viscerally anxious about it, uh, because I remember in the early 2000s, uh, this language of being pro-appeasement uh, or even pro-Saddam uh, was thrown around just to confront anybody who was opposed to the Iraq war uh, until around 2008 when it became obvious that you know, all kinds of people had lied about that, and now the Iraq war has entered uh, you know, the trash heap of history is one of the worst mistakes certainly the United States Absolutely. has ever engaged in. Right? Uh, so I get that. Right? On the other hand, I do think there are contexts where it's appropriate to apply that label. Uh, and this occurred to me when I was listening to people like Peterson or Vance, 
because uh, it's worth noting that in the 1930s, one of the reasons that people conciliated with Hitler wasn't just because they were pro-peace in the United Kingdom uh, and France, for example. It's because they actually admired a lot of what the regime was doing, right? They saw it as smashing down on communists and socialists. Uh, they saw it as doing what it needed to, uh, to bring pride back to an honorable member of the European family. And so they turned a blind eye to a lot of its excesses, and they decided to give them a kind of long leash. Uh, and you can see very similar attitudes on the far right right now, uh, and even in the center right, for that matter, uh, where people very clearly have a certain amount of admiration for Putin's regime. Uh, and so they've decided to conceal that under this cloak of agitating for peace. Uh, and I don't want to have any kind of truck with that. And I think it's radically different uh, than the kind of anti-war positions that we took in the early 2000s. Uh, and so I just am not sure really what the answer uh, is. Like I said, I don't think that can be settled a priori. Uh, but I want to make clearly demarcate between a principled anti-imperialist position uh, and the kind of bullshit that's going on on the other side of the spectrum with people like the one you described. All right. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much for that. Going on to the next call, which is from Thomas. Hey, guys. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Of course. What's up, Emma? Um, well, I think what what I think has seemed most significant to me as a takeaway from the the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is sort of that it seems like all parts of the left, like, the left in total doesn't really have anything to say outside of what is already sort of capitalist debates or policy debates, right? Obviously, a lot of parts of the left try to frame it in a left way, anti-fascism, anti-imperialism, but sort of all they're doing is either sort of tailing the Democrats or the Republicans in one way or another. And I think it sort of points to me towards the absence like the hollowness or absence of a left today, the fact that there really isn't a left position on this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, obviously, to to a certain extent, it's about how the uh, the world is, right? That if we were talking about, I don't know, if this were World War One, we were we we're in like nineteen eighteen and you're you're taking the Dems position, then like it's not just that you'd be you'd agree with uh, the various people more mainstream people in American politics who thought the US should stay out of the war, you'd also be like supporting, I don't know, German sailors who are mutinied against the Kaiser as part of the opening stages of an unsuccessful socialist revolution. And you're not gonna do that now, uh, because there there isn't anything like that to to support uh but but well I, actually b before we before we either see if matt wants to throw anything in there or go out to the next call uh do do you want to do you want to just sound off for a minute on like what like like what would you imagine if there if the left was better or if there just was more of a left like like what sort of what sort of different position would you would you imagine people taking or 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 is that something we can't know from our position right now. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that um, I could know exactly. I mean, I think I, I generally agree with what you were saying. Where, yeah, certainly in World War One, there is a left position, right? There is a like because there is there's potential for left leadership in World War One, right? Today, there really isn't on either side, whether it's Ukraine, Russia, the United States, Europe, whatever, right? Um, and so I think that's sort of like, I think what maybe to me, what we can most take from this is this, like, 
is this understanding of, okay, we've sort of failed in some way because there's this crisis and we have nothing to say or do about it, right? Nothing nothing uniquely left. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that there is all, always a uniquely left uh, thing to, to say about something. I mean, sometimes I think things are easy enough issues that there's a, uh, that like the thing, um, the thing to say, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that there's like, I don't know if we're uh, talking about uh, some innocent person who's about to be executed. I don't know if there's a thing that a leftist should say about that. That's, that's different from what like a liberal, you know, in the, in the political sense would say about it. Or like if we're if we're talking about uh, or there are other things that might be hard enough questions that there's no obvious uh, uniquely left thing to 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 say about it. I mean, I don't know what like the uniquely left thing to say about, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was like other than like, you know, Mr. Khrushchev, Mr. Kennedy, please don't blow us all up. Uh, Matt, do you want to add, add anything to that before we go on to the next call? Yeah, I actually think that's a great question. Uh, and I think this is something. Samuel Moyne uh, and Ian Shapiro are both talking about with tremendous power. Uh, and it's the fact that, certainly since the 1980s, it's very hard to think of a uniquely or distinctly left foreign, uh, sorry, approach to foreign affairs. Uh, and part of that is because the international left was widely discredited uh, or routed uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War and neoliberalism became hegemonic. And you can really see the negative impact of this in the aftermath of the Iraq War. Uh, where the left did a tremendous job in rightly pointing out the anti-imperialist, uh, sorry, rejuvenating an anti-imperialist narrative. Uh, but once the Democrats came into power, uh, there wasn't enough of an alternative put forward about what the world should look like. Uh, so all the Democrats wound up doing was essentially the same kind of thing as the Republicans, uh, just with the more so-called humane laws. And I think one of the major intellectual projects that we need to engage in in the left right now is to develop a unique, distinctive approach to foreign affairs uh, that's not just responsive uh, to the worst excesses of the right and of the center, but actually tries to develop policies and principles for what the world should look like uh, if it were to be more egalitarian and more just. And that's a good way to actually peg my book of how to guide up all involved <laughs> in socialism, uh, since that's one of the things that I try to start to do. Uh, and I lay out a few different answers about what international institutions might look like uh, in the event that we were to have a, a principled left foreign policy. Uh, but there's a huge amount more to be done. And I leave it to other people uh, to also try to develop uh, on that kind of through line. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think that, like, in terms of what we actually want, right? I mean, that uh, I do go with the point that my friend Jade Bajalad will make about this that, um, you know, you don't want to get too excited about the transition from a unipolar to a. Uh, multipolar world for about the same reason that you don't want to get too excited about uh, like one gang controlling a uh, a neighborhood and all the drugs that are sold there to like a few different gangs fighting over it. Uh, but um, but I, I you know I mean ultimately you'd want like international institutions that were strong enough that they could actually restrain the behavior of great powers, which right now feels almost hopelessly utopian given how different it is for the world that we live in. But I mean, long term, I don't, I don't know what else the solution would be. Yeah, and actually, to that point, uh, I should say that part of that tweet, uh, and part of my own writing about this, is inspired by engaging in the work of Alexander Dukin. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I put forward that review uh, as my kind of statement on this, uh, because there's no bigger proponent of a multipolar world than Alexander Dugan. 
uh, and he's actually suggested in numerous works that the left should align itself with the far right uh, as part of an anti-imperialist coalition that's going to check uh, the unrestrained liberal power of American imperialism. Uh, and some people can buy into that because they think, well, any kind of anti-Americanism or anti-imperialism is good in my books. Uh, but Duganism and his vision of a multipolar world is not good in my books, and it shouldn't be good in the books of any leftist. Uh, what we might want is a more egalitarian world, uh, one where the prospect of American imperialism dissolves, uh, but a world where you have all kinds of reactionary states uh, vying with one another to be the biggest, meanest, most authoritarian bully in the land. I can't think of anybody on the left who should want that. No, certainly not. I mean, I think that the... You know, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, I think promoting uh, peaceful uh, resolutions to national conflicts, including this one, you know, does does take us at least slightly in the right direction. But, but you know, I think it's also worth thinking about stuff like, I mean, okay, this is like a, you know, just just kind of a basic bitch early two thousands progressive sort of point about this, but like. Imagine if 20 years ago the United States hadn't worked so hard and so effectively to um, to destroy the possibility of an effective international criminal court. Uh, that, yeah. like, if so, then you know, if you're like a Russian officer in Eastern Ukraine right now, uh, part of your incentive structure would be that you could actually worry that um, that regardless of how the war comes out you might one day end up standing in front of a, a uh, of a court in the Hague right and, and and that's a that's something i really would really like to be part of people's incentive structure yeah myself as well and hey uh you know it might still happen <laughs> anything could occur so yeah yeah i mean it it just uh the i mean i think if you know i, I right i mean i think right Right now, it it, uh, it I think it's been very severely stalled out for a long time. In fact, I think Amer official American policy is actually that, like, I mean, as insane as this sounds, that we would like you know send troops to you know uh, to to liberate you know any uh, any Americans you know who who were uh, apprehended and, uh, and and put up in front of those those tribunals. But uh, but yes, uh, in the future that would be good. But it is three forty-five. I want to wrap up in the next few minutes, so let's 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 see how quickly we can get through as many as possible the remaining calls. Snarf. Hey, what's up? So, um, I, I want to actually applaud you guys. You came to a conclusion that a lot of people don't come to, which is that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Now, the funny thing is that we have this notion that you know the U.S. imperial imperialist entity is the original state of what a lot of leftists criticize and its transformation is kind of like Russia opposes the US imperialist entity, right? But the, its real transformation should be that Russia is an oligarchy that's basically a neoliberal sinkhole. But it seems like that idea is skipped over for a kind of duality or manchinism of, of like, hey, listen, we're just going to talk about the United States is bad and we're going to have a muted condemnation of like an Iran or, or, or China or, or Russia. And I think the leftist ag agenda goes back to the international, right? Because if, if we look at what needs to take place is that the working class within the United States and the working class within a Ukraine, a, a Russia, an Iran, a, a China need to have solidarity and an interest. And I think 
what you just brought up is not what a lot of uh, journalists that specifically are interested in the anti-imperialist uh, project keep bringing up in their reporting. It's a muted condemnation of the other side. And, you know, I agree, the United States is an imperialistic parasite. But at the same time, the other entities are also a problem. And there's very little that's talked about the actual people on the ground. So, you know, kudos to you for that. And I'm wondering if you see that as well as being an issue. And do you think that is there any hope for the American blossoming or like newborn left to have a more international perspective as opposed to just a nationalistic one? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think there are two reasons for what you described. Um, one is that uh, a lot of American leftists in particular uh, came of age during the Iraq war. Uh, and so they have an almost default or instinctive anti-Americanism, uh, which I completely understand, right? I'm not criticizing it, right? Uh, and most of the rest of the American left is made up of tankies who have at least a certain amount of sympathy uh, for any state uh, that's opposed to the exercise of American imperialism around the globe. Uh, and the problem with both of these perspectives is, again, uh, it can locate the source of everything that's bad in the world in the U.S. Uh, and let me be clear again, the U.S. and other Western powers bear a considerable amount of blame for what's going on in Ukraine uh, because of their decision to advance NATO eastward, uh, which broke promises that they made to the former Soviet Union and the Russian Federation. Uh, but there can be many different bad people in the world. And the leaders of the Russian Federation right now absolutely fall into that paradigm. And they are doing horrible things, uh, both to their own people and especially to the people of the Ukraine. Uh, now, in terms of a solution to the Ukraine war that doesn't end with everyone being eradicated, again, I'm not really sure uh, what we can do in that circumstance. I'd really need a lot more information. In terms of longer term solutions, though, I think what Ben laid out is a very good one. Uh, we should be trying to constrain the reckless exercise of state power and certainly plutocratic power everywhere through constructing more egalitarian and democratic international institutions uh, that put a check uh, on power. Uh, and I talk a little bit about that in my book, not really the place to talk about it here, but you know, it's a vision of mine, uh, whether it could be realistically carried out, who the fuck knows. I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that how, uh, I think I may be more optimistic than you about, um, about how many or few, uh, tankies there are, uh, although I, I suppose I haven't done a survey. Uh, let's, uh, thank you so much for the call. Just move it out for the sake of time. Uh, Casey, what's on your mind? Hey guys, thanks for doing this. Um, been hearing a lot of people just think, you know, no subtlety at all. It's either you're, you're a Russian propagandist or you're a pro NATO person. So, um, appreciate you bringing this topic up. I think you hit a lot of, of what my questions um, were going to be. The only thing uh, I would ask is um, been talking to some people about this and um, you know what could have been done to avoid this this uh, situation. Um, and when I bring up like the internationalism stuff, the United Nations usually get scoffed at, you know, United Nations is ineffective. Um, it's impossible to even think about nations working together. So I'm um, just curious what, you, what your response would be to somebody who's, who's in that mindset. Uh, I think that there are two things uh, that might have helped us avoid this situation. 
Uh, one, interestingly enough, would have been the United States not actually deciding to intervene in Iraq. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, the invasion of Iraq set a precedent uh, that Putin and others have appealed to when it comes to intervening in countries like the Ukraine or in um, countries like Syria, for example, which they did through the 2010s. Uh, and it's very hard for us to uh, restrict them because the United States and its allies lost a lot of moral integrity uh, from engaging in those kinds of actions. Not to mention, they just didn't have the kind of geopolitical heft that they used to. Uh, the second thing uh, that contributed to it uh, was, again, I think, the rise of plutocracy in Russia, uh, which was allowed to happen in part because of the implementation uh, of truly horrific uh, neoliberal economic programs through the 1990s that generated a tremendous amount of discontent uh, and allowed a new elite to grow uh, that combined a program of ultra-capitalism uh, with revanchist and reactionary nationalism. And it's a very toxic brew uh, that has proven extremely dangerous uh, for world peace. Uh, and again, we bear some responsibility for that by not even pondering the possibility that such a thing might emerge if at the end, if we had just deconstruct the communist system uh, without any kind of consideration about what might possibly replace it. Uh, but that's all ancient history now, sadly. Uh, what can we do in the future? Again, I've laid out a few different examples, uh, but let's be very clear that huge mistakes were made and we're enjoying the dark fruit uh, of those errors now. Yeah, I mean, all of that, yeah. I, I also think, like, I I often hear people count, like speculate very confidently about what wouldn't have worked or uh how you know this definitely would have happened anyway and whatever and i think we just don't know right i th I think that we uh you know i mean if we if we had the machine from from rick and morty that lets you watch tv from alternate dimensions you know then, then you could you could look at uh what's going on at cnn in the uh in the dimensions where um you know where where the you know the Bernie Sanders op-ed of the Guardian saying we should we should do negotiations to to try to resolve the crisis back in February before the invasion. Uh, if if that was implemented, I don't know if that would have worked or not. I don't know if there's a settlement that would have you know I would have I really liked to have tried. Uh, I mean I think in some ways, and I I agree with you. I think it's a really important point about uh, about Putin as sort of the creature of this. Um, oligarchy that arose in Russia uh, because of the way that the, um, you know, I think uh, Kubarinsky in, in his, uh, uh, he might have said this in his article on Gorbachev in Sublation, but he, um, yeah, I think he, I think he did. I think this is where the quote is from. Uh, you know, he had some nice vivid language in there about how um, the, uh, you know that uh, the the Soviet Union, you know, didn't just just end, but you know it, it was it was kind of, uh, you know, it was, it was it was kind of killed, and then they you know fucked the corpse or something vivid along those lines, you know. But uh, it, yeah, it, I mean, it, you don't see a much more clear instance of what Marx called primitive accumulation uh, through violence and coercion than what you saw in Russia in the 1990s, where people would literally just show up in factories uh, with bands and guns and said, "This is mine now." You know? Yeah, exactly. So. And that is definitely where where Putin came out of, and I, I think that uh, and, and you know I, I think one thing that should be lost in all this is like I don't uh, is that like imperial powers do wildly irrational things that undermine their self interest. That's not actually surprising. That happens all the time, and um, 
And I would put that in this category. I mean, I sort of think of, um, you know, and, and I think really arising in that environment that you're describing. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I think the mob boss comparison is like a pretty good one. And, you know, it's like, look, I, I often think like you can imagine an episode of The Sopranos where um, there's uh, there's like a sit down and one of these people like, I don't know, Feech Lamana or, uh, or, you know, Richie April or somebody like some, uh, what, you know, one of the, one of the hothead foils that they bring on every season or two, uh, is, is so frustrated that he's not getting what he wants, uh, from, from the sit down that he starts some crazy war that he can't win. And, you know, and I think that's like probably not a bad analogy for, uh, for what happened here that the, uh, that, um, that you know there are and like people will say like things like oh it, it can't really be that concern about nato expansion was part of the russian motivation because see now nato's expanding even more in response it's like okay but that argument only works if if one of your assumed premises is that like vladimir putin is a perfectly rational person who wouldn't do anything that undermined russian interests which you know i mean i don't know i mean was the was the uh was the 20 years that the United States spent in Afghanistan did that advance American interests? Like it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have in any obvious way to me, right? Like I think, I think empires sometimes do stupid shit because they're led by human beings. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that I think there are a lot of circumstances you can talk about that led to somebody like Putin, like coming to power in Russia in the first place. I think that it's possible that uh, a diplomatic resolution could have stopped it from happening in the first place. I don't think we could know for sure. I would have at least liked to try, and I I would really like there to be further attempts now before we all die. Uh, but let's take our last caller, who is Andrew. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. How you doing? I'm um, doing pretty good. I Ben, I, I liked your October 5th article on the daily beast i thought that um you made a lot of concise well-written parallels between the cuban missile crisis and now um but i also think that you know there's a lot of people who will and probably have already labeled you a, a putin puppet or just a a tanky of some sort in your uh, in their own words just because uh you've argued for negotiations and I, I think we see for for before during all the way up to now in this in this conflict blinken and biden's broader um cabinet really gloating in the media that they're keeping russian diplomats at arm's length they, they really uh sneer at negotiations um i, I wonder maybe because I know you want to keep it short, just to the point of my question is, do you see any type of political formation that's capable of pressuring for uh, the U.S. to support negotiations? Because I really don't see um, a deal taking place as long as the U.S. is in its current, um, you know, stance. I think, you know, we, we heard about there was a really close call with a peace deal in um, in Turkey. And uh, that was seemingly torpedoed by the UK refusing to give security guarantees for to a neutral Ukraine. I wonder, like, you know, I agree with you in your article and your statements now that it seems like maybe the calculus has changed a lot since the annexation of the four yeah. 
provinces, but I wonder, like, do you see any momentum or, or are you kind of consigned to we need to just wait until 2024 uh, and maybe there will be a peace negotiation? Yeah, I mean, the annexations certainly make it much harder to see what a, like, durable, permanent peace deal would look like. I mean, that that's kind of the... Um, like that's that's kind of Putin up in the ante in a in a crazy way uh, because obviously Ukraine's not going to accept uh, not going to accept those uh, and and so you know he's leaving himself with much less of a way to to walk it back and obviously that does make it all of this an already very worried situation even more worried uh, if you're talking about what I think you're talking about with the uh, the the sort of near-miss deal that looked like it might have been about to happen at one point, and I know there's a lot of uh, conflicting reports about that. But I guess there, there might be good news, because uh, that was Boris Johnson <laughs> at that point, who, uh, uh, who, who seems to have scotched that, and he is actually out of power now. Um, and uh, I don't know, um, and this is not a, you know, don't read this as an endorsement of Liz Truss, but I mean, like, I think that it's uh, who also might not be around for long, frankly, which would be good if she wasn't for all sorts of reasons. But and um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's possible with new leadership in the UK that could be different uh, in the future. Uh, I don't see, I don't see a political formation in the US certainly that's that's in a position to to change to apply much pressure on this. Uh, I'm actually pretty pessimistic about that right now, unfortunately, because, um, because I'm not actually convinced. Um, you know, I think that there are some right wing weirdos of the kind Matt's describing who are maybe, uh, you know, pro peace for unsavory reasons, although whatever, I mean, like if, if it actually led them to support a peaceful resolution, I'd take it. But, uh, but I, I I don't think the GOP as a whole is is really on that page. So I don't I don't know that I have a great answer to that. Um, yeah. To that question right now, like 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 it doesn't seem like there are a lot of bright spots in there. But I think that the and, and it's also like I should say the other thing about this too is that like part of the problem is we could also have it be the. Um, like, if there isn't a peaceful resolution and if Ukraine continues to be very dependent on American arms, like, I mean, you never know how long that'll last. I mean, this is part of the problem with, um, like, the, you know, this is part of the problem with interventionism in general, that, like, there's there's no mechanism of accountability for the people who are supposed to be helped back to the people who are helping them, so... Like that could end at any time in the future, so I I don't I don't know I I, I wish I had a more optimistic uh, answer to to assert I mean I mean I guess I would say and then maybe I'll just throw it to Matt for the last thoughts of the episode since we do need to we do need to get off uh, but uh, but I I think that one thing that I often find like like sort of I often find kind of meta frustrated about the way a lot of people talk about this and I think this is just kind of like political discourse in 2022 is that a lot of people sort of seem to me to start with thinking about what various kinds of political enemies of theirs might think and, uh, and, and why what they think is different. And, um, 
and you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm all for like going through Jordan Peterson's statements or whoever's statements and showing why he's wrong about everything, which, by the way, is the title of an article that Matt and I wrote for Jacobin uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, why Jordan Peterson is wrong about it. Always wrong. Why Jordan Peterson is always wrong is the title. But, um, but I, I also think like, I don't know. I, I think just kind of reacting to other discourse that's going on is a really bad way of figuring out what you think. I think that we, I think that we need to like, kind of start with the principles that we actually care about, and, and then sort of try to extrapolate forwards from that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm in a position where I'm not optimistic that there's any good outcome to this. Uh, I mean, one outcome uh, is that we cut off foreign aid uh, and remove the sanctions from Russia as a gesture towards peace. Uh, and then Putin's victorious, he annexes the entire country, and that emboldens all kinds of reactionary dictators uh, everywhere uh, and other proto-authoritarians. I certainly don't like that one. Uh, the other thing is that we drag the war out indefinitely, uh, and thousands of people die, and the risk of nuclear war increases, uh, and that's certainly not an outcome I think anybody could want. Uh, and this is why I think the reality is that we're just going to have to try to look for the least bad outcome. Uh, in this kind of circumstance. And I stress least bad because I don't think anything is going to be perfect. Uh, will that mean making some kind of concessions to Russia? Possibly. Uh, I mean, if we don't want the world to fall apart, that might mean needing to give the regime some way to save face uh, towards its people and to appease Russian nationalists. Uh, I don't think certainly though that it should reach the threshold uh, where he feels emboldened by these kind of activities or feels that he can get away with anything. Uh, but I think what this does demonstrate in the long run uh, is that the international order as it stands right now is increasingly becoming characterized by inter-imperialist rivalry. Uh, and the way to abet that uh, isn't to just want a more powerful West or a multipolar world, uh, but to try to construct more democratic international institutions that will constrain uh, the power, uh, I'm sorry, the powers that be, uh, particularly plutocratic forms of power. And that's a much longer term project that's going to require an extraordinary amount of institutional imagination. Uh, and I think what the left needs to commit itself to is to really try to develop a foreign policy approach of its own uh, that's not just reactive, but proactive. Uh, and that's what I'll end with. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I, I will say I'm, I'm not super worried about Russia being emboldened at the moment just because they've they've been absolutely shut in the last... Yeah, that's for sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Several months, and I think they've showed that it, in, in a lot of ways their military was kind of a paper tiger. So uh, I, I think that the, you know, I, I think that they're. Um... Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to make World War II comparisons, which everybody always wants to in these circumstances, the closer one would be to somebody like Mussolini. What do they call him? You know, the sawdust Caesar. Maybe you know Putin's, you know, the sawdust Hitler or something, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, right. I mean, I think that the. Um, I mean, I think it. it I mean, in a lot of ways, I think maybe the way the Russian military is reflects the sort of way that, in a lot of ways, the the Russian state in general is kind of hollowed out by by just insane levels of of uh, corruption and and dysfunction. So, um, I, I I think that the you know if there was negotiated settlement uh, anytime soon, I think that the you know I, I think that they kind of Russians would probably be likely to to sort of have be back to where they started in February or maybe even a little bit less, but, uh, but who knows, as you say, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pronounce from my apartment in Atlanta about, uh, about the details of, of what, um, 
you know, sort of specific negotiations between parties might yield. But uh, in any case, uh, I need to get going because I need to go to uh, hop on Zoom because I have a planning meeting for the GTA Left Reckoning. This is Revolution Live show, which I'm just going to shamelessly plug is this coming Sunday. Doors open at 6 at the Terragram Ballroom in Los Angeles uh, with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila and uh, Daniel Bessner and C. Derek Vard and Ryan Lake and uh, me and Jason Miles and Deep State Cuba uh, from This is Revolution and Matt and David from, uh, from Left Reckoning. So uh, do please check that out. Uh, thank you again, uh, Matt, uh, for... Um, uh, thank you again, Matt, for, uh, for, for, for indulging me in this and, and talking some right of this stuff, stuff out. And um, everybody should read Matt's stuff. It is always worth reading. Left is best.